she goes for the high notes, I say, oh, Jesus, help her. <laughs> Let's stand up together and we're going to read. Oh, well, you know what? I'm going to ask you to be seated just for a moment because I forgot. I'm going to let Jesus talk for me for just a couple of minutes before we read the text today. We're in Matthew 7 and ver the first five verses, but I'm going to let Jesus do it for me. Uh, so let's go ahead, chapter 7 and verse 1. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? <laughs> How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? <laughs> First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Give Jesus a hand. <laughs> All right, let's stand together. I thought I'd let him speak for me today. That's kind of neat. All right, let's put him up there, and I want you to read these with me. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be test treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. Say that real good with me now. That's like you're a preacher. Hypocrite. Amen. First get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Father, thank you for your word today. Bless it to our hearts. In Jesus' name, help us to walk like you taught us to walk and deliver us from being harshly judgmental. In Jesus' name. Now will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me. I receive your word. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, perk up and listen, you're going to need this today. Now we're continuing the talk on the hill, and I want to remind you also that on Wednesday nights we're going through the book, Gossip, Slander, and Other Favorite Pastimes. We had a great first Wednesday night. Last Wednesday night everybody got a free book, and I want to encourage you to come, and if you really ask me with tears and pleadings and beggings and for mercy, I'll give you a book. But technically, I wasn't going to do it past the first one, but I'll do it if you really ask past this second one. So Wednesday nights, we're talking about the power of words. But we've been going through the talk on the hill, the Sermon on the Mount. 
The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest, most succinct compilation of Jesus' teachings. And the Bible says that if we're disciples of His, we will not only hear what He said, but we will do what He said. We will hear and do. That's a disciple. A disciple hears and does. He doesn't just hear and walk out. He doesn't just hear and slap the people, uh, preacher on the back on the way out the door and say, great message, preacher, and you get to the car and you forget what you heard. But a disciple says, I hear so that I can do. I want to do what Jesus said. And so in the talk on the hill, we've seen that Jesus is not just teaching a, a sort of a hodgepodge, unrelated set of principles, beginning with uh, the problem of anger, he takes us up a road, up a ladder. Each step on that ladder is another principle, another rung that takes us to the top, that once we reach the top, once we have practiced what he taught, we are experiencing a blessed life. Jesus said, happy are you. How many of you in here want to be happy? Anybody in here doesn't want to be happy? Everybody wants to be happy. Jesus said, if you hear what I say and do what I say, you will be happy. Happy are you if you do the things I say. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is leading us from principle to principle. They are dots that are connected. One leads to the next, which leads to the next, which leads to the next. Now he begins with the problem of anger. And I want to tell you, folks, people are angry today. We're in an angry culture. And Jesus went right to the heart of people and the heart of our problem as fallen people. And he said, you're going to have to deal with your anger and contempt along with your anger. If you don't deal with anger, you're going to have contempt for people. Then he went from anger and contempt to dealing with the lust problem. Eye trouble. E-Y-E. He dealt with the lust issue. And then he goes into dealing with revenge and manipulation of other people. And then he went on and dealt with the problem of worry and worry over money and worry over material things. He basically said, don't worry about anything. I don't want you to be consumed with worry. I don't want you to be worried people. I want you to be set free of it. And then he went from worry to the treasures of our heart. And he said, it matters what you treasure. Everybody treasures something. And Jesus said, you are going to crown one thing, treasure of your life, over all other things. He said, so make sure your treasure is the kingdom of God. Now today, the next topic that he tackles in this connecting the dots, this series of principles that are a unity, he deals with the problem of judging other people, judging, criticizing, condemning, and blaming other people. Now, I know this doesn't happen in church, and I know we're all free of that, but I do this so you can take the CDs to somebody else. There's no judging or condemning or blaming in the church, right? And so, please understand that like a door swings on hinges, what Jesus is going to tell us about judging, judge not that you be not judged, for with the same measure you judge other people... In the same way, the same manner you do it, you're going to be judged by them. All right? That teaching swings on and hinges on verse 12 in chapter 7. And let me read it to you. Jesus gave us the golden rule. Everybody knows he said this. He said, so always treat others as you would like them to treat you. 
This sums up all the teaching of the prophets. You want to take Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets, put them together, and you want to sum it up in one thing, it would be treat others like you want others to treat you. And if you live that way, listen, folks, if we just did verse 12, there'd be no more war, no more murders, no more robberies, no more rapes, no more theft. There'd be no more of this because we would not do to somebody else what we don't want somebody doing to us. So Jesus is saying, don't criticize, don't condemn or blame others in a way that you wouldn't want to be criticized, condemned, or blamed by them. For with the same measure you measure out, it'll be measured to you again. I'm a merciful man. You know why I'm a merciful man? Because I want mercy when I need it. I don't want to be harsh and judgmental. I want to be merciful. Now I want you to listen very carefully to what Jesus said. He said, don't judge in a way that is harsh, mean-spirited, unfair, but you judge with mercy because that's the way you want to be dealt with and treated by other people. Now judge, let's just take this word, this phrase, don't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. That phrase has been so misinterpreted by people in our day when they talk about what Jesus said. And I want to clear this up for us today. What did Jesus mean when he said, don't judge? The word judge is taken from a Greek word that means to try, like in court, to try somebody in court, or to condemn, or to punish, or to pronounce a verdict. That's what that word judge means. It means that you assume the office of a judge in the theater of your mind. And the person being judged undergoes the equivalent of a trial in the courtroom of your thinking. You become the judge, the prosecutor, the jury, and the executioner in your mind. And you assess guilt and blame to them. When we're talking about the kind of judgment Jesus said don't do. You see somebody with a problem or you think that there is an issue in somebody's life and you try them, you judge them, you assess guilt and blame to them. And then once they have been judged by you, when you're doing it the wrong way, once they've been judged by you, they are punished by either, and here's the way it happens in a church, by either ostracism from the group or condemning words or some other form of punishment that we assess to the person that we have decided is guilty. Say, oh, pastor, I can't shout this one down. Oh, hang on, you'll be able to. See, folks, we live in a condemning day. I mean, turn on the news someday. We live in a judging, blaming, condemning, critical age. But Jesus said, you are not of this world. You're in it, but you're not of it. And if you're going to think like me, walk like me, talk like me, behave like me, you're going to have to get out of your system and out of the way you treat people. This manner of judging them where you try them in the court of your mind, you blame them and you criticize them, and then you ostracize them or punish them in some way where they really hurt over the way that they were treated. Jesus here in chapter 7 verse 1 says, don't live that way, don't treat others that way. 
That is not the way of a kingdom heart. Now, I've got to balance this out, and I want you to hear me on this one. I've got to balance this out because I've heard too often on television and other places these words of Jesus misconstrued and mistaught to mean that the church should not judge sin. That is, the church should not judge something that is sinful. Because Jesus, your Messiah, said, don't judge. So what are you doing judging? Don't judge me. Don't judge that. Who are you to judge? After all, Jesus said, don't judge. Jesus never said we were not to judge sin. Now, listen carefully. We are under attack by a, the, by a philosophy called political correctness. And I'm going to call it PC for the rest of this message. We're under attack by political correctness. And churches are being strangled and choked by it. Christians are being muzzled by it. The church is being told, don't call something wrong or right. Who are you to judge? It is a philosophy that is killing the church, killing Christian witness, killing evangelism, and being used to persecute the church of Jesus Christ. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to preach a little bit today. I want you to hear me. I want to clear something up. Political correctness says that you shouldn't judge the rightness or wrongness of anything, especially if it's moral in nature. You should not judge anything if it's moral in nature and you say it's wrong. Who are you to judge somebody else's morality? And the key word, the queen, the king of words with political correctness is tolerance. We are told that we should be more tolerant. If you or I judge something to be wrong, especially morally wrong, we're immediately informed by our culture that we should be more tolerant. Can't you be more loving? Can't you be more tolerant? Can't you just go along to get along? Can't you just love everybody all the time and don't worry about what they're doing? You do what you want to do. Let them do what they want. Can't we all just get along? Can't you just shut up, church? I can't tell you how this vexes me by the day because I see it on television every single day. The news media has bought into this hook, line, and sinker. And if you are a believer and you go on the media and they ask you a question about the rightness or wrongness of something and you respond and say, that is definitely wrong according to God, you're immediately deemed intolerant, right-wing, bigoted, narrow-minded, and stupid, and ignorant, and uneducated. We've got to be tolerant. And to them, to tolerance is love. But I want to parse this. I want to divide this up. I want to look at this today under the microscope of the Word of God. Here's what tolerance really means when they say, you've got to be tolerant. Translated, it means we're not only expected to say nothing, but we're expected to approve of and endorse values beliefs, and lifestyles that are clearly unbiblical. We're expected to not only shut up, zip up our mouth, and say nothing, but if we're really with it, really with the times, really with it, 
we will also say, that's okay. If it's okay with you, it's okay with me. No big deal. I accept your values, your beliefs, your lifestyles. You do what you want to do. We'll do what we want to do. And in essence, don't judge anything but any value or lifestyle or belief system you adopt is equally as good as mine. That's not the word of God says. The individual in our day, the individual is the one, according to PC, the individual is the one who decides what is morally right and wrong, not God. Now I want you to listen carefully to a story from the Bible. In the Bible, you'll read about it in 1 Samuel 11, there was a king called Nahash the Ammonite. And he came against one of the tribes of Israel one day named Jabesh Gilead. And they attacked Jabesh Gilead, and Jabesh Gilead felt very outnumbered and very overpowered. And so they said to Nahash the Ammonite, cut a covenant with us, and we'll be at peace with you, and we will serve you and do what you say. Cut a covenant with us. And Nahash the Ammonite being a picture of the devil. And I just want to say Nahash is a symbol of PC. Stay with me now. Nahash said, all right, we'll cut a covenant with you. You let us put out the right eye of every man in Israel. And if you let us put out the right eye of every man in Israel, then we will let you serve us and we will live in peace with you. And he wanted their right eye. Now watch this. The right eye was the eye with which they used for war. The eye they used for battle. They held their shield up and they would look through the other side of the shield and they would look at the enemy coming with the right eye. The right eye was the eye of aim. The right eye was the eye that you saw the enemy with. The right eye was the eye of battle. If you took the right eye away from Israel, they were rendered powerless to ever defend themselves again. PC wants the right eye of the church so that when the right eye is put out, you can't see the enemy, you can't call it an enemy, you can't recognize it as an enemy, you can't call wrong, wrong, or right, right, you can't see anymore. Saul became furious with this and Saul, in his early days, when he was right with God, said, there is no way this is going to happen. He raised an army. They defeated Nahash the Ammonite. He said, because you will not take the right eye out of Israel. Church, let me tell you something. The devil is after the right eye of the church of Jesus Christ. If we can't call right, right, and wrong, wrong, and good, good, and bad, bad, and light, light, and dark, dark, where are we? We are rendered powerless. We can't see the enemy anymore. We can't battle anymore. We can't fight anymore. Listen, don't don't make a covenant with PC. When Israel was totally backslidden in the book of Judges and they were under the judgment of God, the Bible gives us a snapshot of what was killing them in one telling verse. It says, Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And when the Bible gives that assessment of those people, the Bible is telling us why they were under judgment and why they were free-falling into chaos because everybody was doing what was right in his own eyes. Here's the battle, everybody. 
The battle is throw the Word of God out and do whatever you want to do and whatever you feel like doing. and Whatever you call right, that's right for you. And whatever you call wrong, that's wrong for you. Don't push your right on me and I won't push my right on you. We'll just all get along. But when you throw this Bible out of a culture, that, bio, that culture begins to free fall, begins to plummet into total chaos because you and I weren't wired to judge what is right and wrong. We were wired to walk with God and to receive this book. And so teenagers, don't receive PC. This book will guide you safely all the days of your life. It will give you what is right and what is wrong. God's absolutes for right and wrong, which means some things are absolutely and always right or absolutely and always wrong, has been discarded. Listen, you take care of the truth, and the truth will take care of you. And can I tell you today, unequivocally, there are absolute truths that don't change with any culture. It does not matter who says they're wrong. Right will always be right, and you can't make wrong right no matter how you try to make it right. You can't make wrong right, and you can't make right wrong. Right is right, and wrong is wrong. And that's all there is to it. See, when we threw this out, we put metal detectors in our schools now. Our schools are under a vicious attack. We told God to get out, and he obliged. And now instead of walking in with the Bible and seeing the Ten Commandments on the wall, you walk in through metal detectors. Teachers are scared to death for their life, and students are carrying weapons to protect themselves, and the devil has totally taken over the school system. If you give up on God and you say, we don't want you here anymore, he's a gentleman, he'll oblige. But when he leaves, he does not leave a vacuum. Something rushes in, and it is evil, and it's bad, and it's destructive. And that's why our schools need to be in revival. They need the gospel again. They need God again. They need the Word again. And so this whole condition of doing what is right in your own eyes is now the reigning philosophy of America. This is absolutely the reigning philosophy of a post-Christian America. We are not a Christian nation anymore. We are a secular nation that is persecuting true Christianity. Jesus was not teaching that we should not judge something to be sinful or displeasing to him. That's not what he meant when he said, judge not. Even my dog sniffs something before he eats it. He's got more sense than a lot of people. Shouldn't we do the same and sniff and judge whether or not something is moral or immoral, right or wrong, godly or ungodly, clean or unclean? Turn to your neighbor and say, his dog's got more sense than some people. Let me just show you something real quick. In 1 Corinthians, we find Paul addressing a grievous situation. A man in the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians, you discover this, a man in the church was living in sin with his stepmother. Now listen to Paul, and you tell me whether or not he judged something to be wrong. Quote, everybody's talking about the terrible thing that has happened in your church. Something so evil that even the heathen don't do it. You have a man in your church that's living in sin with his father's wife, and the dad was alive. 
Now listen to the adjectives he used. Terrible, evil, sinful. Was he going, well, now, you know, maybe that's just his truth. If it's okay for him and it's okay with her, the dad can just forgive and get over it because, after all, everybody just does what's right in their own eyes. Paul said, no, 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 you better deal with that because if you don't deal with that within the church, it's going to spread like a cancer and other people will start thinking that wrong is right and right is wrong. He said, you can't let that happen because one of the things that identifies and characterizes the church of Jesus Christ is we have clear discernment on what is pleasing to God and what is not. And we get it from the Word of God, not from in here, but the Word of God. So we are to judge right and wrong, what is godly and ungodly, what pleases God and what doesn't. And we judge it all through the lens of Scripture. But that is not what Jesus was talking about in the talk on the hill. He's talking about how we treat the person who has sinned or is suspected of it. That's what he's talking about. Anybody in here sinned since you got saved? The rest of you, you just sinned. You lied. You just lied. He was talking about how you treat the person who is in sin or suspected of it. In 1 Corinthians, the man was removed from the church. But in 2 Corinthians, he was received back into the church. Listen to what Paul wrote to them in 2 Corinthians. He said, now it is time to forgive him. Everybody say, it's time to forgive him. There's a time to deal with sin and there's a time to forgive. Now it's time to forgive him and comfort him. Otherwise, he may become so bitter and discouraged, he won't be able to recover. So please show him now that you still do love him very much. We're great at 1 Corinthianing people, but we're terrible at 2 Corinthianing people. I just thought of that. Did that come out right? We're great at saying... In a relationship with your stepmother, get out of here, you vile creature. And out they go. Paul, though, said my whole reason for removing him was so that he would wake up to what he's doing. And now that he's awakened to what he's doing, I want you to receive him back and show him that you love him. Because I don't want him to give up hope and walk away from Christ because of the way the church treated him. Do you hear that? We're great at 1 Corinthianing people, but terrible at 2 Corinthianing them. We're great at saying that's sin, but we're terrible at saying, how can I restore you? Because Jesus separated the sinner from the sin. He separated the deed from the doer. When the woman was thrown at his feet who had been caught in adultery... He dealt with all the Pharisees that were surrounding her. They were the gotcha people. Gotcha people are just like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Gotcha people. In the church, there's two kinds of people. Gotcha people or wantcha people. Gotcha people say, gotcha. You vile sinner. Wantcha people say, I want you restored. I want you healed. I want you back. I want you whole. I want you walking with God again. I want the best for you. 
How many thousands of people did not enter a church door today all over America because they were 1st Corinthian and not 2nd Corinthian? I would venture to say maybe a million or two. Because we've got to show the love of Christ. Jesus said to the woman who was caught in adultery, when all of her accusers, the gotcha people, dropped the stones and walked away, where are your accusers? She said, they're gone. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now you go and sin no more. He gave relief to the person and he dealt with the heinous sin. He, and he separated the two. And that's what God does. And that's what we've got to do. So when we see the faults and blemishes and shortcomings and sin in others, Jesus says, first, have a heart of restoration. Is any among you overtaken in a fault? You who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself. Because guess what? You could do the same thing they did. Not me, Pastor Jeff. I've been walking with God 30 years, bless God. I've memorized whole chapters. I'm a pillar in the church. Let me tell you something. Watch it. Watch it. Because anybody can stumble. It's right, Paul said, it's right when you think you can't. You do. And what happens when somebody stumbles in the church? Well, you 1 Corinthian them. That is, you tell them the truth about the sin. But then you 2 Corinthian them, and you restore them. Have a heart of restoration. Then he said, get rid of the condemnation. Then help them. Listen to Jesus. Why do you concentrate on the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the two-by-four in your own eye? You know, I used to wonder, what is the log, the two-by-four in the eye that Jesus was talking about? I really believe I understand it. I believe it's the condemnation. You can't help somebody if you're looking at them with disdain, condemnation, blame, and criticism. Not your spouse, not the lost, not somebody who stumbled in the church. You can't look down on them and help them. He said you've got to remove the two-by-four of condemnation, blame, criticism, and self-righteousness. Well, I've never sinned since I've been saved. I go to church every Sunday and even Wednesday night and even make it to prayer every once in a while. If you're that way, you have forgotten that you were cleansed from your original sin. I was thinking about this. I experienced this, and I'm going to close with this story. I, uh, I mail a lot of my books out of a place called Post and Parcel. Post and Parcel is right down the street from us, and they allow me to sell my books in there as well. They've been really good to me. I had a book signing there. have a good relationship with them. Anyway, I noticed one day when I walked up to Post and Parcel that a tattoo shop had moved in right next door. And man, have you ever noticed that tattoo shops don't attract people you would necessarily want your daughter going out with? They attract motley crews. I mean, they're up there with that spiked hair and the orange hair and the purple hair and tattoos hanging off of everywhere and earrings and spikes and everything. And, and when I saw them moving in, here's what I said to myself. <clears throat> 
<laughs> I remember I got out of my car like this. <laughs> and I looked at them, sort of. I didn't see them the way they really were. I saw them the way I thought they were. And I walked into Post and Parcel this way. Because when I walked up, they were hanging around. They had chairs outside, kicking back, smoking their cigarettes, cussing like sailors. So, man, I got out of my car. I had, I mean, it was just like this. And here's what I was thinking. Good grief. They've ruined the, the neighborhood. They've ruined the shopping center. And why don't you get a job? If you can sit out here and smoke and toke, you can go get a job and flip a burger. And I went in and I stood in line this way, fuming over it. They made me mad. I judged them. I had my mind made up. They went to court in my mind. I tried them. And I came back with a verdict, guilty. <laughs> and I'm standing in line this way. And now you know how the Holy Ghost can mess up a good moment. You know how the Holy Ghost can mess up a good moment? You know how he can do that? And I'm standing in line thinking, well, I'm so glad I'm not like them. I'm so glad God delivered me. I am so, and those of you listening by radio, I've got a great big stick in my eye, just so you'll know. I'm glad that I don't do that anymore. I'm glad I'm an upstanding citizen. I'm glad I've got a job and I don't mess up like that. And I don't smoke, run, chew, run with the boys that do. I'm, I'm, I'm not like them. And the Holy Ghost ruined a great trial. And he spoke to me standing in that line. He said, what are you thinking? And I said, I'm thinking I'm glad I'm not like them. And he said, but you used to be just like them. And I said, I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> and I'm standing there just like this. And the Lord said, Jeff, you used to be just like them, probably worse. I said, what are you saying? Now that my moment is totally ruined. He said, do you realize that you can't reach them as long as you're looking at them like this with a stick in your own eye? He said, you're condemning them, you're judging them, you don't know them, you don't know what they're thinking, you know what their needs are. You've written them off. I put the stick down in the line. I said, you're right. He said, you say that you want your church reaching people, but they're just like the ones that you need to reach. And how are you going to reach them if you're walking around with that great big stick in your eye? Because when you've got the stick in your eye, you don't care if they live or die. You're not burdened for their soul when that stick's in your eye. You're not praying for their salvation when that stick is in your eye. You're just wanting them to leave. And it was true. I said, Lord, you're right. You're absolutely right. I'm a hypocrite. I've been a hypocrite. I should have walked right past them and thought, oh, my gosh, 
They need the Lord. I should have stopped right then and said something to them. Instead, I judged them, walked around with a great big two-by-four in my eye, and I had no burden for them at all until God spoke to me and said, that's got to come out of your eye. Now listen, there's somebody lives next door to you, somebody at your work. There's people you come into contact with every day that you do this with. I do it. I have to tell myself, now are you doing that again? Because when the stick comes out of the eye, Jesus said, then you can see. Then you can see. You can see their need. You can see them like I see them. And that's people who need to be saved. We've got to remove the two-by-four of anger, blame, and self-righteousness before we can help others. That's what's got to happen. So when Jesus said, judge not, he wasn't saying don't judge right and wrong. He was saying don't judge with that stick in your eye. That's the difference. Can we stand together today? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we need you today. We need you to help us to not be self-righteous and judgmental. And Lord, I believe there are people here today that need you, maybe one person, maybe more. But with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you can say, Pastor Jeff, I need love. I need his love. I need to make peace with God. I need his peace ruling in my heart. Do you know that today he loves you unconditionally? There is no stick in his eye. He loves you and sees you just as you are and loves you just the same. Maybe you used to walk with God and you've gotten away. Come back to him today. What a great opportunity to do it. Do it right now. Do it today. If you've never known Jesus, I want to tell you, no matter how you've been treated in the past, he loves you with an unconditional love. And he wants to touch you today. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if you can say, Pastor Jeff, I need his love. I need unconditional love. I need to know that I have peace with God. I've gotten away from him or I've never really surrendered my heart to him. One or the other, I'm going to ask you to surrender it now. You can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories, and I'll let you pray for me. Would you raise your hand right where you are? I need him. Raise it high. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. I see you over there and back there. I need Jesus. God bless you. I'm going to ask you, with your hand is raised, I want you to slip out from where you are, and I want you to come and stand right in front of me. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. Everybody's in prayer. This is between you and God. I want you to slip out and come. And if you're with somebody and want to bring them with you, bring them with you. That's fine. But you come now and let the Lord bring peace to your heart. And then I want to do one other thing. If you feel like God is adding you as a member of Turning Point Church, if you feel like this is your church home, I read again this week, those that are planted in the house of the Lord 
will flourish, be fruitful, produce green leaves in the house of God. I'm going to ask you to get planted in the house of the Lord.